Hello, and welcome back to the OWASP podcast. I'm Matt Tassaro, and I'll be the host of today's episode. In this episode, I host Adam Shostak and talk about threat modeling, not only what it is, but what Adam has learned from teaching threat modeling to numerous teams. You'll get to learn what makes a good threat model and some news about a new book that Adam has created or is creating to help further the spread of threat modeling with the end goal of more threat modeling and hopefully fewer security surprises. It's clear that Adam has put in an incredible amount of time and thought and energy into how to best bring the benefits of threat modeling to a broader audience. And you'll hear that in this episode, which I'm sure you will enjoy. Hi, it's Matt Pissarro. I have the pleasure of being here with Adam Shostak today, and we're going to talk about threat modeling. I can't imagine you don't realize that Adam Shostak is the guy who wrote what has sort of become the threat modeling book. Threat modeling designed for security is a title. Been around for a while. And so it's great to have you, Adam. You want to give a, a brief introduction to yourself just for our listeners if they may not be familiar with you and or your book? Sure, sure. So... Hey folks, I'm Adam Shostak, and years ago I helped create the CVE while I was at one of my startups, spent some time at Microsoft helping them threat model while I was there, wrote the book. Thank you for your kind words there, Matt. And about seven years ago, left there to really help the world threat model. And so I do training and actually very excited on May the 4th, announcing a new book, which is Threats, What Every Engineer Should Learn from Star Wars. So really excited about that. And really, you know, we could take this where you want to take it, but I would like to talk at some point in this about what brought me to that. Well, that's hilarious because my first sort of seed question was quite honestly to say, like, you wrote the book on threat modeling. Like, what inspired that previous work? How did you get started in this vein? Because I'd like to talk through that. And then my next question is, like, how has it changed since you wrote that book? Because obviously, you know, if nothing else, the InfoSec landscape has, has changed, hopefully, in some years. So what inspired you to initially write that book? So... I had done a good deal of threat modeling before I joined Microsoft. And when I joined, my boss looked at me and said, Adam, you can't even do the threat models for Windows or Office, never mind across the company. And so the thing that we need you to do is not to do the work. It's to figure out what it is you experts are doing and make that accessible to people. And that shift from threat modeling as a artisanal thing that you learned in a mentor relationship to an engineering practice was really something that I worked on for a good four or five years while I was at Microsoft. At some point in that journey, I tried to say, this shouldn't be an Atom thing. It should be a Microsoft thing. It should be an industry thing. And as long as I am holding the flag and waving the banner, it's an Atom thing. 
And so I realized that the shortest, easiest path to helping other people understand what I had come to understand was not creating software or a game to help people threat model, but I had to write a book. And, and I realized, by the way, that I was wrong, that it was going to be an Adam thing a little bit. And I'm excited to be part of the OWASP threat modeling channel. We've got 2,000 people in there on the OWASP Slack. Come join us. We're friendly. It's great conversation. And I'm excited to see other people doing really great work because this is not something that is just about me. It's something that is about how do we do better at asking these fundamental questions like what can go wrong and what are we going to do about it? And the book was the simplest, easiest way to present those ideas to the world back when I wrote the threat modeling designing for security. Nice. Yeah. And it's funny. You remind me, I did a, a web app uh, pen testing class a long time ago. And one of my students asked me, aren't you worried that you're going to train people and they're going to take your job? And I just snickered because like, are you kidding? There is so much work. I could train this room full of people every week for a year and we'd still need the people sharing. That's one of the things that's interesting about InfoSec. Sharing is generally pretty darn good because everybody realizes, you know, you're kind of on the back foot and, and you've got more work than you can handle anyway. So the sharing doesn't hurt and it kind of makes you better, honestly. You know, I learn so much by teaching and it's it, people say this, but let me give us an in fact specific example. I remember the fellow's face came to me after one of my courses and said, so I'm not a security person. What do I, what, what's the one thing I should go read to get a deeper understanding of the threats that can happen? Huh? It's a really good question because in security, there's this, that's the word I want here. There's this implicit transfer. There's this ambi ambient information where you learn about these things over time and you build these mental constructs to help us chunk and understand. But the introductory books in security often start out with, and you know, there are some wonderful books about getting your career started or becoming a penetration tester or writing exploit code and respect the folks who have written all of those and their good works. And I think there's another piece that we need, which is what can go wrong? How should I think about that in a more structured, more systematic way? And so that's been my passion for a while is how do we get, how do we get beyond being on the back foot and get to all of those folks who are building the products, who are deploying the systems, right? System men's have long understood a great deal about security because they operate the systems and we don't, we sometimes don't partner enough with them to help us develop secure and operate secure systems. 
Yeah, that was one thing very early in my career. Actually, my first job out of college I got was working for a web app development company in the Netscape days, cough, cough, tell you how long ago it was. But one of the things we did is when we had our own little pieces that we were writing and we'd get done and there's a, a, we were all in one room, we had a table in the middle, we'd roll up to the table in the middle and say, hey, I'm done with my bit of this thing. You guys check it out before we give it over to the QA folks and, and have it move on towards production. And the thing to do at this job was to utterly destroy your coworkers app, right? And, and my first one got utterly destroyed. Like, why would you put that weird stuff in a phone number field? Well, cause I can and haha, like your app broke, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, and it was such a great lesson. And, you know, I came out of college with good grades and a good degree from a good school, no clue about the whole security side of things. And I, that you're right. If you could instill the feeling of what happened to me as somebody who got to eat crow for a couple of weeks after my app got destroyed, right? If you could get that into kind of a book or a little more gentler introduction kind of form, that would be a fantastic thing. You know, your point about gentle is, is so important. And, and it's the reason, it's the reason for the Star Wars bit. You know, I, I'm willing to admit to being a bit of a Star Wars geek, well, who but isn't? I'm all source, but I'm all, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to name names, but there are people who like this other show, this other franchise. There are people who want to use these other things. The reason that I find, or the thing that for me makes the Star Wars metaphors is that the technology is really integrated into the world. And so we can ask questions like, when R2-D2 plugs into the Death Star, what user ID are those queries running under? Why is an anonymous droid able to plug in and get highly sensitive details about prisoner detention blocks? Now, now maybe, maybe the answer here, here I'm going to demonstrate that I overthink this. Maybe the answer is because the Death Star is a security perimeter and anyone on the Death Star is allowed to run queries because they'll be in a great deal of trouble if they do nice. things they're not supposed to do. So maybe it's by design, right? Maybe they said that maintaining access control lists as people come on and off the Death Star is just going to be too much work. We don't have the people power to do that. And, and so we can talk about authentication. We can talk about authorization. We can talk about usability using this as a way to you know, be a little silly about, <laughs> about what's going on because your description, you know, like the Death Star, you got destroyed. Um, yeah. <laughs> I did. But being, de being destroyed stinks, right? You were probably something between sad, annoyed, angry about that. Oh, my. That was many years ago, right? That, that was... 
oh, the late 90s, early 2000s, something like that. I can't remember exactly when, but yeah, it's a long time ago. And I vividly remember eating some serious crow. And of course, coworkers being coworkers, I, I heard about it for weeks until the next person's got destroyed, right? <laughs> but, but yeah. So if we can make it a little friendlier, that's one of my goals for this whole project. Nice. Well, and I, I like the, it, it is, I, just, I was about to say, it's nice when you can make it real, but Star Wars is questionably real. But it is nice when you can make it relatable. That's probably a better word. Because if you've seen Star Wars, you've seen R2 plug in, you get that, right? And then you get the whole, hey, we, oh, that's where the prisoner is. She's over there. We'll just go to that cell block, whatever, right? You get that. But it, it's nice to have that as opposed to such a an esoteric but you work for Big Corp and there's a consultant who comes in and he plugs in his laptop and it's the same functional thing, but it just doesn't have the pizzazz of and, and memorability, honestly, of using a story arc of Star Wars, let's say, to get that done. Being able to attach to things, right? Being concrete. Maybe I should say Durasteel or something. I don't even know what materials they use, <laughs> but yeah. And so... You've obviously had some changes and we're kind of almost talking through them now just in, in general, but so what motivated the new book and what has changed to make you have that motivation to write this sort of next step in your threat modeling journey? So, so really it, it came from doing trainings. It came from watching people ask similar questions. Okay. I can ask what are we working on? People are pretty good at talking about that. They're used, they're not necessarily used to drawing like a data flow diagram, but they're very used to whiteboarding and communicating about what we're working on. So I was going to say that the, the, one of the things that always got me when I would do trainings is these uh, crazy grassy knoll kind of stories that come out from the, from your students, right? Of like, Hey, at our office, we do X, Y, Z. And you're like, wow, in my wildest dreams, I never would have thought of that. Were there any kind of truly interesting things that came out of some of the, your interactions with your students, like either interesting ways they solve problems or an interesting approach to threat modeling or threat modeling something that you thought, ooh, I'd never thought to threat model that? Uh, those are always a great thing from teaching. I've been incredibly lucky in in the breadth of things I've gotten to work on. Literally going from tiny devices that cost a nickel through spaceships. I've gotten to work on autonomous vehicles. I've gotten to work on things that are core to the financial system. And I can't talk about them in detail <laughs> because if I give you the details, you can identify the customers and they don't like that. Sure. And, and so it's hard for me to tell, just as an example, if I were to say, oh, yeah, and this company doesn't use LiDAR or they have three LiDAR sensors on the car, people in the know, no. So the thing that I can tell you is over and over again, people are looking to grow their knowledge of what can go wrong. And this, we use, we, we have a bunch of techniques that we can apply. We can apply stride. Let me just say, it's a classic. It's not 
old and creaky. It's remarkably supple for a 23-year-old. We can use kill chains. We'll invent more things we can use to help us ask what can go wrong. They all depend on this ambient knowledge that as an OWASP member, as an enthusiast who's listening to this podcast here right now, the amount of knowledge that you may have picked up along the way is enormous. And transferring it to someone who doesn't know. I, I remember I was at I was at a physical retailer doing a threat modeling training session. Somebody looked at me and said, you must have, I, I could never learn this. You just make it look so easy. And it's like, no, no, this is not innate knowledge. I was not born knowing any of this. My ancestors didn't survive longer on the, 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 planes because I could discover replay attacks and network uh, models. <laughs> this is stuff that I've learned. And our challenge, my challenge, the way I think about it as an educator, is to give people those frameworks, those cubby holes at the same time as I'm giving them the concrete details. So we can use R2-D2 plugging into the Death Star to talk about authentication and authorization. We can talk about intrusion detection. We can build each of these off of the same little story. And by giving you these categories, my hope is that our listeners can say, oh, I should be thinking about authentication relative to this app that I'm working on. I should think about who's authorized to gather this data back out of the system and what data should my app emit when asked for it. That is the thing that I really take away from doing all of this training work is how much there is to know and how much we need to give people the, the scaffolding, the frameworks to build their knowledge. Yeah, that, that's a huge thing. I, we did a ton of threat modeling when I worked at Rackspace. In fact, we ended up mm -hmm. hiring somebody who's like a full-time job was just doing that for a year to get all the pieces of Rack's cloud sort of knocked out and understood. But one of the things that, that, and I was kind of like you, I was the threat modeling guy. And so I'd go do all of them, but I'm a constraint. You know, there's only so much threat modeling I can do. And so we started to try to get other people to do these. And one of the, things that I used to stress with my team when they would go out and do threat models is it doesn't have to be perfect, right? It just has to be better than the nothing we have and we've made an improvement. So your first threat model, if you miss some things, hey man, you miss some things. You're gonna find some things and our product's gonna be better for it. So that's okay, right? Mm -hmm. Cause it, it was kind of a, how can it, cause you're right. I had some of the team members say, you just make this look easy. You go up the whiteboard, you draw a bunch of lines, you talk to the team and you have a threat model. I'm like, yes, but I've done a bunch of these. Like I, I, I do martial arts. And when I was a white belt, I could barely kick above my waist. And now I can kick over my head, right? Why? Because I've been doing it for eight bloody years. Mm -hmm. And you get good after all that practice. Like it takes practice. I love the martial arts example. It, it's so, it's 
so important to to realize that you go through your i don't and i don't do martial arts so i don't know but you're a white belt a yellow belt a black belt uh, there's probably in between stages there right yeah there's there's a bunch depending on the art oh yeah but yeah. you're good enough yeah, but but if you go into the the martial arts training facility and you're like wow that black belt can kick above his head and i can't i shouldn't try this that's the that's the wrong lesson in the threat modeling manifesto we we talk about did you do a good enough job and the only way you ever do better is by asking that question grimacing a little bit if the feedback is not good and trying again that's what learning is is we build skill through repetition through critique through deliberative practice yep yeah one of my favorite slides that i did a bunch of talks on the appsec pipeline idea where you use cicd mm -hmm. to treat security artifacts instead of deployment artifacts but in, in one of my talks I showed my very first diagram because I, I would show my final nice, you know, um, done in Visio-y kind of diagram that looked all pretty and everything was nice and it's clean and it's sharp and everything's logical. And I said, this is what I can tell you about today. But what I want to tell you with where we started is, and I had literally a, a piece of paper because where I worked at the time didn't have many whiteboards. So I had one of those like double legal size, extra big pieces of paper, mm -hmm. the coffee stain on it and hand-drawn notes. That's where it started, right? Like it yeah. didn't start in the sexy finish. It started with this, like, just scribbling on a piece of loose paper, right? Because you have to start somewhere. Yes, and this is really important. I, today, have whiteboard sketchbooks. They're polypropylene-coated paper, so you can sketch at your desk. And there are multiple pages, so you can iterate. I iterate. I don't come out with, I've been doing this for over 20 years. I don't do the right diagram the first time. I sketch and then I redraw and there's tools that can help you do this. And I'm, I'm gonna admit that I like the process of drawing and redrawing because it gives me time to think about what my diagram is. And drawing with a pen forces you to think about why am I transferring this thing to the next iteration? But yeah, to go back to your point, it's never right the first time. And when we show up and instead of showing people hello world, we show them, here's Nginx. It's like, uh, okay, there's a, there's a gap between these things and I need some help. What is important to you as an expert about what the stages look like? Being willing to show your work is beautiful.
completely agree with that. And the, the one I, you, you remind me of a question and an argument I've had about threat modeling. So I'm going to ask you this because it'll be interesting to get your feedback. And I don't I honestly don't believe there's a right answer. There's more of a Ford Chevy opinion thing. OK, but I used to be very loose when I diagrammed in a meeting. Right. Whiteboard. Mm -hmm. Everything was a square. Everything was lines. And I'd take a picture with my phone at the end and then I'd turn it into something real. Because I've had other people who are very like, oh, this has to be this shape because it means of this and this is the other thing. And, and I, I never understood that, to be quite honest with you, but it also was very functional. And this person who did this uh, that I worked with did great threat models. But it was just interesting to see that dynamic between am I pristine in Rev 1, at least according to the spec of like a DFD, or do I just kind of loosey-goosey and then convert it to a final formal, if you want to call it that, threat model? So, okay, so first I want to argue a little bit with one thing you said as you were speaking, sure. which is you converted it from a whiteboard to something real. I think the whiteboard is real. I, I think we <laughs> undervalue fast and cheap. Well, and, that's true. I guess I should have said threatened by a cleaning lady. <laughs> <laughs> right. I used to joke when we had the agile board in one of the places I worked in the hall and I was like one over aggressive cleaning person and our agile board is destroyed. Like, what are all these sticky notes? I should put them in the trash. Right. And the, <laughs> wait a minute. But anyway, so, yeah, no, you're right. I, that, that is incorrect phrasing. Those whiteboards were very useful. I just, I guess I needed something I could hand out to people without carrying a giant whiteboard with me. And the word you just used useful is my key. So I teach people a formalism for diagramming that I call DFD3, right? We use rounded rectangles for code under your control. We use sharp rectangles for code not under your control or for people. And you get some benefit from using that because everyone knows what you're referring to when you do. And you pay a cost. People have to understand what the shapes mean. They have to agree on what the shapes mean. You know, are arrows one way or two? Do we use a double head arrow or a diamond back to refer to where the origination of the data flow is, right? Who's, where's the open and where's, where's the listen and where's the connect? Then there's the, you're doing it wrong. And this, this is the real threat is if the person who's doing it precisely is inclusive and welcoming and just asks a question and says, you know, usually I draw code under my control with a rounded edge to, to help me distinguish, cool. And if they say, Matt, you fool, why are you drawing it like that? Um, that's, that's where I'm going to push back on, on the whole perfection is when perfection is gatekeepy, mm. when it's dismissive, when it's not inclusive, because we need the people who are engaged in building stuff to be able to speak this language with us. And so Number one part of my answer is what, what's the utility? What's the usefulness of making the extra effort? And number two is, are you, 
are, are you pushing people away with your behavior? No, that's, that, and the, the usability is really everything. Because my, my favorite pull it out story about threat modeling was at Rackspace, we had a, a product that we were talking about uh, that we hadn't launched yet. This was fairly close to launch, uh, maybe like a month out or so, maybe a little bit more. I can't remember exactly. But the big thing was we had a threat model, right? And we're talking about mm -hmm. this proposed product. And because of how it was architected, there was one choke point that was a, a, a system that end users could log into and do things that had potential negative consequences, right? Like you could write a, if it was a database, you could write a query that ate all the CPU kind of a situation. Right. And I raised my hand after we described how the system was gonna work. And I said, now, what does it take to be a rack customer? And they were like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, it takes a credit card. Right? That's really all you need to be a cloud customer is a credit card and a browser and you're in, right? It's not a high hurdle. So in that situation, we have a single system that's a shared system where people can potentially write queries that eat all the CPU on that system and it's shared. Like, is that a good decision, <laughs> right? And, and the, the, you know, it kind of lights one on across the, the product team and they thought, oh, uh, no, that would be really bad. I'm like, yeah, if like one dumb customer comes in with a credit card and writes a crazy query that eats your CPU, it's affecting all of our customers. And suddenly that's a really bad thing. And they, we really like cut the meeting short. They went off and redesigned the product and we launched a much more robust product because of it. And it was literally just a conversation of, and like you said, it's kind of sharing that I, maybe my, I'm a little bit bent or something, but that they kind of attack our mindset of like, Ooh, it'd be really bad if this happened. And I see that as a potential here how would you address that? And what's the, you know, compensating control or what have you? And there, there wasn't one. There was like, uh, uh, it goes down or people's response times are horrifically long and that's never a good thing. So yeah, that was a, it was an interesting case where like a threat model, I mean, I can't imagine if we had launched that product and found that problem in, as part of a like post-facto pen test, right? Mm -hmm. What an ugly weekend that would have been for some people. Or you mentioned, what if it was just a dumb customer, right? What if you, what, and, and I'm going to go to the term unskilled, right? What if you have someone who's just not good at writing SQL, who writes a query that's ugly? It's not even necessarily a malicious act. And one of the things that I think we do as security people is we accumulate stories about things like this. We accumulate stuff we've seen. And in your head, that's probably a, there's probably a version of that story stored in denial of service. And there's probably a version of that story that's, that's um, stored under author authorization. Right, there, there's, yep. and we don't store in this way in our actual. But anyway, conceptually, yes. Wrong. A lot of what we do is this reasoning by analogy to this storehouse of accumulated stuff, and there's absolutely people who have a tricky joker attacker mindset whatever you want to call it the archetypes go way way back and one of the questions that i'm struggling with is how much is that relevant 
can we replace the attacker mindset for the 90% case, the 20% case, the 99% case, right? How much of it can we get our peers, our colleagues to understand and do? Where's that piece that requires that artistry? And I suspect that this is not the book that's coming out soon. I suspect this is a book or two down the line. <laughs> we'll, we'll have my answer because I don't know. And so actually let me invite people who have answers to that. I'd love to hear from you. I, I really am ruminating on it. And I don't know that I'm even formulating the question well yet. Yeah, I've wondered about that, honestly, too, when I've done, like I said, pen testy kind of training, mm -hmm. right? Because there is that, like, you you approach it with the attacker mindset, right? Which is really easy to kick out. But if I had to define it and then quantify it, I don't know that I could, besides I know it when I see it. It's kind of like the, the Supreme Court uh, <laughs> definition of, of pornography. I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. Well, that's that's nice from a legal sense, but it doesn't really give you any nice clean edges work around. And that, mm -hmm. that, that's tricky. That's a very, very tricky thing. So I heard you mention the Threat Modeling Manifesto, and you were one of the authors of that amongst a whole bunch of people. What, what was the motivation behind that? How, what, what was the, you know, what is the, the, what is the thrust behind that effort? Like, where are you going with that? You collectively. So, yeah. So, I mean, it really, it really was Izar's brainchild, Izar Tarandak. And Izar brought a bunch of people together to say, we have this shared understanding of what makes threat modeling work. And if you read academic papers, there are these people who have cataloged a whole bunch of, here's a dozen models of how threat modeling works. And there's no commonality. I'm waving my hands like a, like a mad person because <laughs> people can see that on the podcast. And when they say that, what they're missing is that we actually have this commonality, that we actually have a set of patterns that are not. Adam says, do this, and it works. It's There's 15 of us who have, you know, I'll say the respect of our peers and Irene Michelin and I just did a thing, it'll be available soon with OWASP Stockholm. We had a great conversation about what makes threat modeling work. And one of the things that came out is that since the manifesto, since my book, we've really developed this common language around the four question framework. And it's enabling innovation, it's enabling progress. And so the manifesto was a way of getting the word out that, hey, you don't have to reinvent this from whole cloth. You don't need to, you don't need to worry about some of these things, right? Worry about doing it versus talking about it. And I think that really ties well to your martial arts example. I could talk to you all day about how to do a kick and get it above my head. 
but I'm guessing that the thing I need to do is 10 or 20,000 kicks with somebody holding like some padded boxing glove sort of thing higher and higher so that I'm kicking higher and higher. Yeah, absolutely. It's a progressive iterative thing to that final goal. It's never, I mean, I would, I, well, maybe I wouldn't love the, the, the dark and wrong part of me would love to see what I looked like when I was a white belt, right? Pretty horrific. <laughs> but, you know, and now, no. now hopefully I looked a little less horrific. But yeah, and it, it is really that. And it's funny because I think a lot of, uh, that's something that gets, gets lost in a lot of the conversations and the, the conference talks or a webinar or whatever is, you see the shiny end result and you don't see the blood, sweat and tears that went in to get that shiny end result. And I, I kind of like surfacing that to say, look, you are gonna struggle with whatever you're doing, right? It, it, it takes time to get expertise in anything and there's gonna be some you know, struggle, but you will get there. You know, a lot of our listeners, a lot of your listeners, excuse me. Eh, um, they're, they're, they're your listeners too. They're, they're listening to us. They're listening to us, that's what I meant. Yeah. Might have picked up a new pandemic hobby. And I want to draw, I want you listening to think back to whatever it was you might have started doing during the pandemic. Remember the first loaf of bread you baked. Remember whatever the first thing you did was and cherish it because it was the start of a journey. It was a new thing you learned and it didn't look good. It wasn't what you wanted it to be. But over the last couple of years, you've developed that skill. If you, if you developed that skill, or if you've got a friend who developed that skill it, as someone with a lot of expertise, I love being able to look at people's work and say, try this next time, do this differently next time. And people are always like, can you show us your threat model for this? I'm like, no, you don't, you really do not want to see my work here it will make you sad because I've been doing this for 20 years and it should look different from your work. And so I show it to them at the end of a training, not that not during purely because I don't want them to feel discouraged. I want them to feel like, and they are making progress. Well, and then you probably too get some really interesting like experiments in those trainings too. What if I did it this way? We did it at Rack. Like I said, I had that one guy who was off doing threat modeling of all of the cloud after I'd sort of initiated that progress program. We handed it off to him and that was his bailiwick for about a year. And he, we started having all these diagrams individual of pieces of Rack's cloud. Well, mm -hmm. we got a wild hair one day and this I'll credit Kevin for this. It was his idea. He started sticking them up on the wall. And then literally taping string between them because cloud A would call cloud B service, right? And so we started drawing these lines and made this huge map of the rack cloud with paper and string uh -huh. on the wallet rack. And we knew we succeeded because some of the product teams were walking over going, oh, crap, cool. I didn't realize that, you know, cloud this called our cloud that. Oh, that's really cool. Like yeah. we ended up doing a final like big, we found a, a plotter and we did this big plot of it at, at the end. Yeah. But like even just taping it on the wall with string was incredibly useful. So I'm curious what the end was. 
Because well, every play, uh, sorry, keep going. Keep going. Probably the big end result that I recall, anyway, besides the fact that we did actually have a map of all of our cloud bits, was that we found this service. And for the life of me, it's been too many years. I don't remember what it was, but it was this innocuous little service that took like a tenant ID and gave you their billing address or okay. something like that. But every freaking service called it. So if you think about that service in isolation, you're like, man, it's an address service. Like, yeah, it's kind of probably kind of important. If you, from the hip, did a risk assessment of it, you'd think it's like mildly risky, maybe. But every cloud product called it. Every cloud product. So it was actually this crucial thing in our cloud that was completely off everybody's radar and kind of like this also ran product of one of the, or also ran service of one of the product teams. Like, who knew? <laughs> Yeah, so I the pattern of big wall maps is really, really valuable. And I've never heard string before. I love it. Um, totally love it. And I was first introduced to it. Some one of the product teams at Microsoft had been doing it. And I was walking through their space one day. And I saw a team holding their stand up next to it and pointing and jabbing and scribbling on the, on these, you know, they had biggest plotter they could find sort of maps. And they were pointing as they were talking through their sprints. And it was just this aha moment for me of that iteration, that lightweight, imperfect spur of the moment I'm scribbling on the wall with a pen had so much value in communication. I found the person who did it and they had budget allocated for a new hire to run around, copy those annotations into big visios and get them reprinted regularly. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, and that's why I was asking you about the end state is because there's no end state. It's a living thing. And, and this is actually the second time we've touched on a really important budget, which is walls. You talked about your Kanban board and what happens if someone pulls these post-its off. Okay. When we were all in physical space together, what's on the wall was what mattered. Right, because there's only a few big walls. And so your Kanban board is the shared awareness. Your threat model diagram is the shared awareness. And we allocate this budget. And another thing I would love to hear from listeners about, I would love to hear how are you maintaining shared awareness in a distributed world? Lots of people I talk to are threat modeling well. Lots of, you know, everyone's discovered how to be distributed. But what are they doing to maintain awareness, to maintain the ambient knowledge that we got from the walls? Yeah, that would, I would love to get some of that feedback too, because you're right, that's a tricky thing. I mean, I, there's lots of digital ways to represent these things and share it that way, but then it kind of can get lost in the ether too, at least... For me, I don't know, I, I kind of like, like you said, the physical space because I, I walk to that spot and there is the thing, right? I don't have to even think about it. It's, it's very concrete. 
I, I'm an introvert. I, I, I'll admit I sort of enjoy just being at home. But, th- you know, like everything else, there's trade-offs and figuring out what they mean and why they mean things. Is it the water cooler chat was a big source of threat modeling opportunities? Oh, really? You're building what? Have you thought about this? <laughs> it's harder to get to now. Yeah, it is those unintentional interactions don't happen. You have to be very intentional about them these days if you are fully remote. It's a very different, very different environment. If if we've had listeners now, or our listeners, right, and they're curious about threat modeling and even more curious about your Star Wars version of threat modeling or your Star Wars book or analogy on threat modeling, when's that coming out? What's the story on that? How can they get their hands on it, et cetera, et cetera? So, so thank, thank you for asking. It's coming out in the fall. It is not available for pre-order just yet. But if you go to threatsbook.com, we're taking signups. We will send you only notifications about this. I hate spam. I hate people who are like, let me tell you about this other thing. So we're not gonna we're not gonna blast you with irrelevant stuff, but we will tell you when it's available. It, again, threatsbook.com, or if you go to showstack.org, click on resources and books, there'll be a link there as well. But we wanted to announce it early because of May the 4th, because of Star Wars Day, and also because, and I've asked a bunch of questions of listeners, there's a couple of chapters where I'm struggling, where... I think the explanations are good, but I'm looking for beta readers. And so one of the choices that you will have as you hit that, as you hit the sign up page is you can volunteer. You'll get a little bit more email. You'll get some opportunity to dig into some of the content before other people and help make it even better than it is today. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, Tony, oh, UV. Yeah, who did the pasta book? I read an early draft of that from him years ago, mm-hmm. and that was it was fun to do. It was really interesting to see the sort of progression of a book. I, I, and I talked to Tanya Janka about this too. The same thing. I've never written a book. I've always kind of wanted to, and I've never pulled the trigger yet. So it's fun to to interact with authors in that way and and see the sort of craft of taking something from this like napkin idea to actual you know pages. Re- revision. Revision is the most painful thing and, and the most important to really, you know, one of the, one of the things that one of my beta readers told me was it needs more structure. It bounces too much. Yeah, he was right. He was really correct. And so it, we learn through these interactions and I'm really looking forward to hearing from your listeners. Well, hopefully we'll get a bunch of feedback in on this. I hope so. I'd like to thank No Name Security for making it possible for me to record this episode. No Name is a complete and proactive API security platform that protects APIs in real time and detects vulnerabilities and misconfigurations before they can be exploited. No Name is an out-of-band solution that integrates with your existing infrastructure to provide deeper visibility and security please give them a look.